John chapter 18, starting at verse 12. Judas Iscariot has betrayed Jesus, and now Simon Peter, another of Jesus' disciples, is about to betray him, to deny him. And both of these events were predicted by the Lord himself. Verse 12. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Caiaphas, who was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter was also standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews came together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest? He demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him, You aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it, and at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Things and uh, people aren't always what they seem. I think we saw that in the video early on, didn't we, with the, uh, the bear and the, the bird. You thought the bear was just going to get in there and eat the, the bird or something. I was actually rescuing it. But people also aren't always what they seem. On the screen, we have... Um, few people coming up um, in just a minute. This is one person who uh, appeared on Britain's Got Talent. Uh, when people looked at her, they'd almost dismissed her straight away, Susan Boyle, until she opened her mouth and this beautiful voice came out. Another person, not always what they seem, TV presenter, child's entertainer, um, but had a, a dark, hidden secret which only came out after he died. 
Another person um, doesn't appear what he seems, just appears like an ordinary soldier, but actually somebody incredibly brave, Josh Leakey, um, who was recently awarded the Victoria Cross. And then finally another guy, negatively, just looks like a normal guy, rap singer, but uh, actually it turns out to be Jihadi John, accused of various barbarous acts. Appearances can be deceiving. Crime writers are brilliant, aren't they, at um, getting you to suspect someone is a guilty one, only for them to turn out to be completely innocent, or the other way around. Somebody who thinks innocent, who actually ends up being the one who is guilty of the crime. Well, the passage we're looking at this morning is not just an account of what happened in the last hours before Jesus' death, but also a great piece of, of writing. It's cleverly constructed, it's dramatic. It's almost written like a screenplay for a, for a film. You can imagine it cutting from one scene to the next and back again. We're following what is happening to Jesus, and then we're on to, to Peter, and then back to Jesus, and then back to Peter again. And all these events are actually happening quite quickly because this is Thursday night, Friday morning. And the rush is because Saturday is the Sabbath, and the following week is Passover week. And a body couldn't be left hanging on the cross during that time. So if the authorities wanted to get rid of Jesus, they had to do it now. And they had to be quick about it. And it's not just the, the action that is so vividly described here in this passage. It's the characters that are involved. And there are three sets of characters we're going to look at this morning. And none of whom sit up here who are what they appear to be at first sight. And the first ones we're going to look at are the Jewish officials, the ones who seem to be in control, but are actually very insecure. Now, apart from the little incident with Peter trying to slice off the, the ear of the, uh, uh, the, one of the servants of the high priest, uh, or did he just try and cut his head off and missed it? Who knows? But um, apart from that, the arrest is fairly straightforward. Jesus is taken bound um, to Annas. Annas, we're told, was the uh, father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year, although commentators point out that Annas was himself previously a high priest and still has a lot of influence in these circles. But why did the Jewish officials decide to arrest Jesus in the first place? What prompted that decision? Well, to find out, let's get back to chapter 11 of John, um, verse 45. And this uh, passage here comes immediately after Jesus has done another amazing miracle. He's brought Lazarus back from the dead. And the passage carries on, chapter 11, verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. What are the Jewish officials worried about? Well, up to this point, they've been trying basically to challenge Jesus, to discredit him. And that had obviously failed because the miracles have continued even to the point of bringing someone back to life. And more and more people were following him. And what the authorities feared 
was that there would be some sort of uprising, that the, the Romans would then put that down, and in the process the temple might be destroyed, uh, they may impose direct Roman rule, and ultimately the Jewish leaders would be stripped of their power. The Romans, they say, will come and take away both our temple and our nation. The overriding concern seems to be what they personally will lose, their status, their power. They're acting not like religious leaders who are concerned for the nation, but political leaders desperate to cling on to power. Last year, President Putin of Russia said this, the worst and the most dangerous thing that can happen to a politician is holding on to power by any means and focusing only on this. In this case, his failure is inevitable as he's always afraid of taking the wrong step. This is not what you should be thinking about. You need to focus on the results of your work. Time will show. Oh, wise advice from President Putin. I guess time will show for him as well. So if Jesus is a problem for the Jewish officials, what are they going to do about it? What is their plan of action? Well, let's read on in that chapter 11, verse 49. This is what comes up next. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realise that it's better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He didn't say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. That's interesting, isn't it? The Jewish leaders know that it's wrong to murder someone that goes against the, the Ten Commandments. But they're trying to justify it by saying the safety of the whole nation is at stake here. But of course there's huge irony in this, isn't there, as well, because, um, and John the author points this out, Jesus is going to die for all the nations. But he's choosing to do that. And he will save them not from perishing at the hands of the Romans, but by saving them from God's judgment. As he said to Peter in the, uh, the garden of Gethsemane before he was arrested, he said, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Shall I not fulfill the will of the Father, which is for me to take the punishment that uh, humankind deserves because of its rejection of God? Well, let's go back to John 18 and see what happens. How do they try and get rid of Jesus? And this is where they may appear to be in control, but are actually very insecure. And we see that in the way that they question Jesus. Jewish laws stated that no one could be accused without two witnesses first establishing their guilt. And yet here's the high priest questioning Jesus on his own. He's taking the law into his own hands. He's always trying to find some way of putting something on him, some chink in the armour. They're trying him in a way that appears legal, but of course isn't. And they'll try and justify themselves, but deep down they probably know that actually there's something not quite right about this. And the two areas they question Jesus about are his disciples, it says, and his teaching in verse 19. Has he led them astray? Does his teaching contradict the, uh, the scriptures? 
But Jesus, in his response, questions the, almost the legality of their, their arrest. He's saying, I have nothing to hide. I've always spoken openly. If I've taught something wrong, then there should be a lot of people who will tell you exactly what it was. They will come to you. They could be your witnesses. But where are they? To which he's slapped in the face by one of the officials who thinks he's showing disrespect to get a high priest. A typical human reaction where people don't get their own way. Or maybe they realise their own guilt and they resort to violence. Attack being the best form of defence. Maybe physical, it may be verbal. Now we might be outraged at the behaviour of the Jewish authorities, uh, but when might we be guilty of similar behaviour? How do we respond when we are worried that something that is valuable to us might be taken away? How do we respond when we know that we haven't done what we should have done? Do we try and cover it up? Do we try and deflect attention away from our mistakes by pointing to somebody else's mistakes? Jesus is not interested in how we come across before others because he knows what is in our hearts anyway. He wants us to be honest about our failings, to confess our sins and to seek his forgiveness. And if we are Christians here this morning and want to proclaim the gospel, then we need to model that sense of humility and repentance and our need for God's grace. The Jewish authorities are the ones who appear to be in control. They are the ones inflicting pain on Jesus. But who is really in control here? Well, Jesus is the one who is really in control. He is the one who continues to speak the truth with great integrity, even in the face of serious injustice. Remember from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Now we might have heard that uh, many times, but for well, what actually does that mean? Does it really mean you just stand there taking the punishment? Well, Jesus here is putting that in to practice. It doesn't mean he can't point out evil and injustice when it occurs. And that is why he replies, if I said something wrong, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Now the reason Jesus is able to respond with such calmness is because he knows what is going to happen. It is under his control. And that is a good example for us to follow. How often do we respond to something we consider to be unfair, with anger or bitterness or aggression? What do you do when you feel you've been unfairly treated? Maybe in the workplace? Do you try and take things into your own hands? We don't actually need to because, not because we are in control, but because Jesus is in control. And if what has happened is not according to God's will, then he will prevent it from going further or he will bring some good out of it. So that doesn't mean when we experience injustice we shouldn't point it out. And there are some good organisations around who, who exist to do just that. If you think of persecuted Christians around the world, that is what they're doing. Groups like Barnabas Fund, we support, or Open Doors. This earlier this year, there were um, 
74 MPs attended a meeting organised by Open Doors to uh, discuss their report, Freedom of Religion and the Persecution of Christians. And this is what one MP, Henry Smith, wrote to his constituents after the meeting. He said, this has inspired me to redouble my efforts as a member of parliament to do all I can to protect freedom of faith. In particular, the right of Christians to worship without fear in every country around the world. So we can point out injustice, but we can trust in God that he is in control. The other great irony in this episode is that the high priest is questioning Jesus when actually Jesus is the real high priest. The high priest is the one who intercedes between the people and God. He speaks to God on behalf of the people. He speaks to what God says to the people. But Jesus is about to enable us to have direct access to God the Father. It will no longer be necessary to go through a human intermediary. Let's um, have a look at um, Hebrews just further on in the New Testament. You go to Hebrews chapter, chapter 7. And it describes very well Jesus' role as a high priest. If you've got a church Bible, you'll find that on page 1206. Hebrews 7, verse 23. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness, but the oath which came after the law, appointed the Son, who has been made perfect forever. Annas was just a man. Caiaphas was just a man. They had to sacrifice for their own sins first, before they sacrificed for the sins of the people. And those sacrifices they had to keep on making were day after day, because we continue to sin day after day. The difference with Jesus was that since he was perfect, his sacrifice had eternal validity. Through him, we are able to be made right with God forever, and we can dwell in the presence of God. Jesus has been brought before Annas to be questioned, but it's Jesus who ends up questioning Annas. Annas has no answer to his question, and so he sends him to Caiaphas. Even when he's bound... Even when he's been shunted from one person to another, Jesus is still the one who is in control. Well, the other character in this episode with whom most of us probably identify is Peter. Peter is the one who always seems uh, intrepid, who seems to have great confidence, who has no fear. Let's um, turn back to another passage just to see that in action again in John's Gospel, John chapter 13. 
verse 33. This is Jesus speaking. He says, My children, I'll be with you only a little longer. You will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, would you really lay down your life for me? Very truly I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. I will lay down my life for you, Peter says very confidently. You can trust me, I'll be with you right to the end. And to be fair, when the soldiers come to arrest Jesus, Peter is the one who draws his sword, the one who is up for, up for a fight. But now Jesus has been arrested, and that courage seems to have evaporated. He still follows Jesus with another disciple, but at a distance, in the shadows. I'm not sure who the, the other disciple is, something it might be John, but he somehow has connections with the high priest and is able to get access into his courtyard. While Peter waits outside. And then he has a quiet word and uh, Peter himself is allowed to come in. But look at the question that Peter is asked. Back in uh, chapter 18. Verse 17, a servant girl asks him, You are one of this man's disciples too, are you? It's a servant girl asking it. He's not being questioned by one of the high priest officials or anything like that. Just a servant girl. In question implies that she knows this other disciple is one of Jesus' disciples, but what about you? You're not one of his disciples as well, are you? He's expecting the answer no, isn't it? Expecting the answer, of course not. (laughs) Don't be silly, don't be silly, it's not me. And that would be the easiest and most convenient answer to give, wouldn't it? He can then get back to waiting quietly in the shadows. So Peter replies, I am not. Maybe that's meant as a contrast to the I am that Jesus said quite clearly when he was arrested. But as you hear the question put to Peter, you're wanting Peter to say confidently, yes, I am, actually. You're willing him on. Go on, Peter, go on, say it. He says, I am not. I wonder how he would have answered if she'd asked just the straight question. Are you one of his disciples? Maybe he would have given a different reply. What is going on through his mind at that moment? Maybe he's thinking... Oh, she just caught me off guard there for a moment. Um, I, I didn't have time to think. I just blurted out the first thing that came into my mind. Of course, I don't really mean that. And I'm sure we would have done that many times ourselves. Now, when have you been asked? Um, you're not one of those Bible bashers, are you? You don't believe in all that stuff, do you? You don't believe praying will make a difference, do you? Yes, I do, actually. Once we've lied, once we've denied Jesus, it becomes 
harder each time. As we see with Peter, a little later in verse 25, he's now standing round the fire, warming himself. It was cold, probably would have been less conspicuous to be in with everybody else. And this time, same question comes again, but from more than one person. You aren't one of his disciples too, are you? Come on, Peter, this time you can do it. Come on. He denied it, saying, I am not. Or maybe third time lucky. And this time it's getting harder, a servant of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off. It's getting personal now and challenges him with a more specific question. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Peter's told two lies. How can he now go back on that? You know, he's getting deeper and deeper into it. Every time he tells a lie, it becomes harder to change his story. And so once more, Peter denies Jesus. And at that moment, the rooster begins to crow. Just think how he would have felt as the words of Jesus came back into his mind to haunt him. Imagine the guilt, the shame. And some of that is picked up in this picture as we see Peter just looking down. Jesus is in the background in the dark. He can't see him. Jesus has no shame. He stands before his questioners. He speaks the truth clearly. He's not afraid of the consequences. Peter is full of shame and lies. He is afraid. And before we're too hard on Peter, what are the ways in which we might be tempted to deny Jesus? Maybe you've simply kept it quiet that you're a Christian at work or or at school. You think, well, at least I haven't lied. If somebody asked me, of course I'd say I was, but nobody has. Or you're asked what you did on Sunday. Instead of saying, well, I went to church in the morning and to enjoy that time of fellowship and worship, you say, oh, I watched a bit of rugby in the afternoon. Again, not a lie. But um, was that really the most important thing you did? Or your friends are talking about Christians in a derogatory manner. And you just keep quiet. You want to remain in the shadows. I'm sure we've all been in similar situations like that, where we may not have lied directly, but out of fear we did not speak up for the truth, for the one in whom we believe. Well, the good news is that this is not the end of the story. Jesus is going on to be crucified And it's his death for us that allows us to be forgiven every sin that we have committed, even to the sake of saying we don't believe in Jesus. And Jesus comes back to life. He goes on to forgive Peter. He goes on to reinstate him. And Jeff's going to be looking at that this evening. And it's great to know that sense of forgiveness. It's great to know that we are right with God because of what he's done. And if you don't know how you can receive that forgiveness, if you don't know that for yourself, then do have a word with me afterwards. If we are already a Christian, though, what do we do about that ongoing temptation to deny Jesus? Let's ask ourselves when we're in that situation, who is the real king here? Who is in control? You may be with a whole group of people who are mocking, but ask yourself, who is really in control? Is it these people you're with? Or is it Jesus, the King? Do you believe that he's in control? Do you believe he is the King? 
or in this country where Christians are a minority and Christianity is being sidelined. Who is in control? We are in many ways in the same situation as the early disciples were in a minority. But who we follow doesn't depend on who seems to be in control, but who really is in control. Will you follow people who have such a short lifespan, or will you follow the eternal God of the universe, the King of Kings? Will you remain faithful like those Christians in Pakistan last week who went to church knowing it was a dangerous thing to do, but going to worship the King? Fourteen people died who are now with their king now. Seventy are injured but still proud to be known as Christians. What we say together, the words of our verse for the year, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. So a moment of quiet just to think through those words, to hear what God is saying to us, and to ask for his help as we go forward Father God we thank you that Jesus is the real king that he is in control of everything that happens to us everything that happens in this world and we are sorry where we may have um, let him down where we've denied him or we've kept quiet where we should have spoken up and we ask your forgiveness for that And we thank you that we can be forgiven. We thank you that we can be made right with you. But Lord, we do pray for for more courage as we go forward, that we would be not ashamed of uh, Jesus Christ. We would not be ashamed of the gospel. That we will be able to stand confidently in him. And by the power and strength the Spirit gives us, we can proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to a, a needy world. So Lord, go help us go to go out from here, being filled with the Spirit and with the confidence that comes from him. In Jesus' name. Amen.